Before the episode begins, I'd like to talk to you about Health.Tech, a unique conference happening at the International Congress Center in Munich on June 5 and 6, blending top-tier content and exclusive opportunities to meet leaders and founders from the health tech ecosystem. The event is co-founded by EIT Health, Roche, and Bitten Brettles, the team that created one of the largest founders' festival of the same name, which Michelle Obama, Richard Branson, and Jessica Alba, just to name a few, attended. Their idea for health.tech was simple. Take the ingredients that made Bits and Bretzels so successful and apply them to the health sector. The result is a unique conference where more than 3,500 participants representing payers, providers, patients, startups, investors, and corporates connect, share insights, and join forces to catalyze growth opportunities in health tech. Two days to think and act together on the future of health. I joined the event the last two years, and for 2024, I'm honored to be among the selection of thought leaders who act as ambassadors on behalf of health.tech. To secure your ticket, head over now to health.tech tickets and get 20% off with the code MATTHEWC20. That is M-A-T-H-I-E-U-C, in capital letters, underscore 20. I look forward to seeing you there. Now back to the episode. In the past, a lot of the analysis on, on proteins or, or, or even genes was done and is still done basically with a bulk or single cell type of analysis where you don't have this 2D map or the context. But we are basically enabling spatial biology in every lab. So that's our mission. So we're making sure that uh, the labs are getting everything they need to be able to analyze that and do it in an easy way. I would never have thought to, to be able to be an entrepreneur because you, you see mainly male entrepreneurs and, and you know just being able to have some of, some of those role models, I think it's just happening as a whole in the ecosystem as well. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where you will meet the person shaping the current medical advancements and pushing the boundaries of what is currently achievable in healthcare. Be they researchers, doctors, engineers, or entrepreneurs, who will explore through in-depth conversations their field of expertise, as well as the journey that took them where they are now. Losing my voice. Okay, so good morning, Deborah, and welcome to Impulse. Um, first of all, thank you very much for accepting my invitation to be featured as a guest on the show. Um, I really look forward to learning more about your activities that you guys are running here at Luna4. Um, having studied biomedical engineering at EPFL, I was able to witness the evolution and the growth of the company, uh, at least from the outside, which are co-founded alongside two other persons, uh, namely Diego Dupuis and Atatuna Siftlik. I've always looked up to your company as a startup during my time at university, to be honest, and um, it seems to have moved way beyond the status of a startup, as I, as I think you're now more than 100 or yeah, 120 collaborators. Um, so we're going to talk about a variety of very interesting topics. I assume it will be on a, on a slightly different note than the previous episodes, um, since the technology that you have developed is somehow farther away from the patients than other ones that we talked about in the past, like surgical robotics, for instance, that we covered with um, Lucien Blondel from Quantum Surgical in episode two. So we'll talk about microfluidics, immunostaining, spatial biology, to name a few. Um, it'll surely be an additional challenge on my side as I'm not a specialist 
in any of these topics, uh, but I'm sure you'll be able to take us through those in a simple and insightful manner. And it's only going to make the episode more entertaining, I'm sure. Um, it's also worth mentioning that Alex, a collaborator of yours and good friend of mine, whom we greet, helped me preparing the episode quite in depth by taking me through all these concepts and the stakes around your technology. So I hope it will live up to his expectations. Um, but before we take a deep dive into what Lunar4 is doing and all of these topics, would you like to present yourself? Yes, thank you very much for the kind introduction. And uh, yeah, I hope I'll do a good job in, in simplifying everything <laughs> you're doing as well. So yes, I'm, I'm Deborah Heinze. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Lunar4, currently the chief marketing officer. Um, and I have a background in bioengineering. So that's uh, where we have the, the common background. Um, from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, I did spend a year also in, in Boston. So that was Harvard, MIT, Health Science and Technology, uh, doing some, some research there uh, for a year on microfluidics, which was kind of the common link Indeed. to what, what <laughs> we're doing at the moment. Um, and basically, after coming back from the US, I've been um, doing some... Uh, I mean, initially looking for a job like many people have to yeah. do <laughs> and uh, through an internship and, and some work at the technology transfer office of EPF, I did meet uh, the other co-founders and that's how we um, then went on this adventure of Lunar4. And in in my case, so I had the role of chief operations officer. That means kind of many things when you're a small company and as as we've been growing uh, with the company, I've had different roles. So basically, apart from research and development, I stayed with the CTO and everything on the fundraising side, mostly on the CEO. I would say that I had covered uh, many different um, of many, many different departments uh, as we've been growing. So operations, uh, sales at some point, uh, customer support, just to name a few, but the basic, let's say, everything I've kept along the, the, the growth of Luna4 is everything on the marketing, product management, strategy, and, and everything around market research or communication. So this is what I'm still having under my hat of chief marketing officer today. Okay. So now are you a bit further away from, you know, the R&D side of things and the purely technical and hardcore science, or you still get to interact quite a lot with the teams doing that? Yeah, we do interact a lot because product management is defining also the, the vision of the products, understanding fully what we want to, you know, bring in terms of features or so mm -hmm. for the product. So there's a lot of interaction there. And also, um, I mean, marketing is maybe very different types of marketing than we think of from maybe other types of companies where basically everyone in the team has a scientific background or even a PhD uh, to understand everything on the science side. However, I haven't been in a lab for quite a while. So yeah. uh, although for the maybe for first four or five years I've been in the lab, I've been going yeah. to customers with our first prototypes, running those. Um, uh, that was really fun. And, and But it's true that as we grow, then other people have been taking this role as well. <laughs> Can you take us through the, the origins of Luna4, explaining how the, the project emerged and where the technology that you have put together comes from? Yes, sure. So this was, um, it was basically the PhD of our CEO at Atuna. And um, so he has been developing this in the microsystems lab at EPFL. Um, and that was basically the same lab where Diego was as well. So they've been working together to some extent on this project. So 
basically the reason for this PhD project was to see whatever could be improved on immunohistochemistry staining, which is the, can explain a bit more afterwards, but it, which is the basically the core type of assay that we're running. Yeah. Um, and there hasn't been so much innovation on that for the last decades. So okay. there was uh, an incentive, th there was a collaboration project actually with the University Hospital of Lausanne as well, where the pathologists wanted to see how this could be improved to some extent in terms of precision speed, but also just how you can get um, better data using those uh, stainings. So this, is, this was basically the, the, the initial project here. And um, as, as uh, there was in, then a patent that, that came out and also some prototypes, yeah. uh, there was a bit of a push from, from let's say, the doctors to, to try to get this out as a real project and not just, a, let's say, remaining as a research project in a lab. So, yeah. So that was at the end of the 2010 or something like that, time-wise? Yeah, time-wise, that was, um, let's say the PhD was from, from Adatuna was from more or less 2010 to 2014 or so, if, okay. I'm, if I'm correct, maybe a bit earlier than that. But when we really started looking into the capability of this project to be something more than just a lab project, that was back in 2013. And that's also when I, I joined them um, as part of the project initially. So right after my... Um, my work in, in the US. Okay, so you directly joined the company after your master's thesis or you, you had the transition period where you work at the tech transfer office, you said? like oh. Yes, yeah, so that mm -hmm. was actually... Um, so. That was actually quite quite funny because I was looking for a job. I did this internship. I had this common, as I was mentioning before, this common microfluidic know-how yeah. applied to biology. So it was really the, the core link. So I, I chose a, a project I wanted to help, which was that specific project. That project. So there was another name back in the time, Neofluidis. So that was okay. <laughs> worth thinking. It's more like a name of a medication. So that we, we changed the name <laughs> later on. But uh, that project was was basically in the lab, part of their PhD. And my role in this was to see also how we could potentially um, bring that to the market. So in terms of regulatory steps, in terms of just the, the potential of the market, market research, and, and this kind of um, let's say these kind of things we had to look into for basically understanding the feasibility of pushing this out as a as a real uh, project. So already at that stage, you were looking into the commercial side of things or the commercial potential of the solution, although it was very very early stage. Yes, exactly. So that was my role, although not many let's say years of experience on that yeah. in particular. But it was basically I was one more um, a set of more hands or brain that could think about that um, and, and have them on the project. So that was just basically two months. And after that, they, they, I think they were pretty happy with my work and wanted me to join as a, as a founder. And that's how we, we started uh, officially, the three of us really kicking off this as a, as a startup project. Okay. I was about to ask the question now, <laughs> how the, the opportunity arise. Like, so, so they basically like just asked you if you wanted to be a co-founder, like they, yeah, exactly. So there was there was this, and there was also, of course, um, because as we were maturing the idea here, understanding that this could work as a project, but also some some funding via a small grant that we got back in the time that could have allowed for the three of us to get a, a very small salary back in the time, but you know, just something that can support this as a as a as a project for the next six months or so. And in the meantime, you had we were fully dedicated to the project, or you all because I mean thinking about the, the situation in which you were, you were also like still applying for other jobs. So did you have other possibilities outside of it or it was 
the only one you said, okay, we'll just take that one. Yeah, so <laughs> that's actually quite fine. I was still looking for a job because I didn't know what, what um, you know, I was not at all expecting that yeah. would become an opportunity, actually. Uh, and the funny thing is that the real, I mean, the exact same day that they asked me to, to join as a co-founder, I got my final offer and contract for another company, which same was <laughs> a much more established company with, yeah. of course, a much bigger salary and, and you know, just a bit more uh, security for the longer term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's the, the gut feeling then speaks for itself. And, and um, although everyone around me told me not to go for, with this, let's say, startup project because it could just fail after three or six months, yeah. um, I kind of decided to go for it anyway because of the, again, gut feeling and, and the good um, relationship I had already back at the time with Atatuna and Diego. Okay. That's super interesting. <laughs> maybe we can move uh, maybe towards explaining what, what the company is actually doing. So it's um, it's quite a technical subject. Um, maybe you want to introduce in your words what, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, so let me try to simplify as much <laughs> as possible. Um, so we are basically what we've uh, developed at Luna for this core technology based on microfluidics, uh, which can extract proteomic or genomic data from tissue samples. And tissue samples, I mean biopsies, tumor biopsies, yeah. etc. Um, and what is important here is that you're extracting that data, but you're keeping it in a spatial, what we say, spatial context. So that means, and I'm going to make an analogy here to, to the Google Maps, for example, yeah. um, getting some information, uh, whether you have, I don't know, 50 restaurants in Lausanne versus understanding where they are in the city, if you have to walk up the hill or if you, you know, how long it's going to take you from one place to another is a, is a completely different set of information that you get. So. Yeah. Basically, we're extracting all of this information um, that is extremely necessary for, for better understanding what's happening in your tissue. So the applications are mostly, for example, immuno-oncology or cancer-related, uh, uh, but there's also neuroscience, infectious diseases, and, and basically any kind of disease. So the interest here is if you can understand where your proteins are, how your cells are interacting with, with each other, you're then able to develop much better targeted therapies, but also drugs yeah. uh, that will lead to, to a better you know, diagnostic for the patient as well. And maybe one more example here um, in terms of immuno-oncology, I mean, just, just to give you the importance of, of understanding where they are in a spatial context, if your immune cells are within the cancer or not, it gives a completely different prognostic because immune cells within the cancer means they are fighting the cancer. Yeah. And if they stay around, that it means uh, your, your immune system is, is not doing that. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the initial positioning of the company was to go in the direction of a diagnostic uh, system or was it also already like research oriented as it is a bit more now? Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's always been uh, everything we're doing is always to pa uh, done to pave the way to, into the clinical and diagnostic space. Yeah. Um, however, so we had first a, a product that was both validated for research and the diagnostics, um, and we basically had the, that was at the beginning of COVID. We had to you know just decide where we we're going to put our focus because that's completely 
different yeah. efforts in terms of commercial activities as well. Yeah. Um, so we did have a lot of potential for, for you know, running the two, but we, we saw a lot of traction on the research side, which yeah. is what you're doing at the beginning to go later on to the, to the diagnostic side. So although we had that, um, let's say, angle on the diagnostic side, um, we were also cooking much more on the research side with new applications, new things that now are part of a new product as well. Yep. Um, and we decided to rather bet on this. And this is, again, just one step we're doing until getting back again to, to the diagnostic space later Exactly. On. So the vision is to go into that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a matter now of time, resources and and, and, and all of that. So. And in terms of like forcing applications, would that be something you could deploy in the operational room, for example, where you would have the pathologist analyzing at the same time as a surgery is taking place, you know, characterizing the tumor environment, that kind of thing, would would that be? So that was uh, that was our <laughs> that was our application with the diagnostics. Okay. Um, so basically, one and and maybe I can just give a few more words. So the the, the first product, Lapsa, was um, basically a, a small top benchtop instrument where you can run a lot of different applications. So a lot of different applications means there was a lot going on on the research side, um, many, many different types of applications, also depending on the labs, depending on, on you know, whoever is using the instrument. And the on the other hand, the diagnostics, uh, in, diagnostic inst instrument could be used, the, the, let's say the use case that was the, the most successful was to use it during surgery, so basically, when you're yeah. uh, extracting your tumor from the, the from the from the patient, you want to understand where the margins of the tumor are mm -hmm. um, to make sure you have removed every cancer cell that is in the in yeah. the body of the patient. Uh, so you would do a very quick staining. So basically, that's one marker that you would want to want to see and understand very quickly um, during the surgery. Again, if you need to to remove a bit more of the of the of the samples or the tumor in the patient. Um, so so that was um, basically the the initial application for that. And again, now it, it, there is and there was interest, but we decided to bet more on the research side that is slightly different. Um, in the end, the instruments we're developing now or the product lines we're developing on, on the research side to go to the clinical diagnostic space are coming with a slightly different focus. So it wouldn't necessarily be used in, during surgery in this case for yep. that specific use case, but rather to bring much more information mm -hmm. uh, for, for basically doctors to be able to better understand how patients are you know uh, capable of benefiting from some drugs or treatments so it's it's a bit of a different um, diagnostic approach let's say and so the field in biology that you guys are at the you guys are pioneering in a sense and that's kind of uh, bumping from what I've been able to read uh, around spatial biology I think this was mentioned by nature as like one of the most innovative methods in 2020 um, so what is um, the, I mean, first, like, what is it about? Like, so linking what, what Lunafor is doing, you mentioned that you were able to create maps of, you know, human, human cells and different types of tissues and where you would be able to look up um, many different markers at the same time. I think that's what's the, at the core of the technology. And so what, what is the promise that, that 
this new field holds in our understanding of how the immune system works and how certain path pathologies like cancer that we mentioned unfold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So spatial biology is, is actually quite a new term. It hasn't been used. I mean, three, five years ago, you wouldn't yeah, necessarily hear exist. about that. So mm. it's uh, it's very new. The, the What spatial biology is, is basically... In the past, a lot of the analysis on, on proteins or, or, or even genes was done and is still done basically with a bulk or single cell type of analysis where you don't have yeah. this 2D map or the context to, exactly. to see where, where is what. So that's what we call spatial biology, this new frontier in life science that is bringing this additional dimension for you to understand what is happening in your biological sample. So as opposed to techniques like cytometry where you destroy in a sense the where you lose the spatial information exactly mm -hmm. exactly okay. yeah exactly so uh yeah so we're now bringing that um that new capability which was not there before yeah um and and again have that, that that's as i was mentioning before that has a huge impact in suddenly being able not to have just some information that is more kind of a statistical kind of information, yeah. but you have the full uh, map. Um, and what is important here is that you are suddenly capable also of bringing much more information at once. So it's basically for, for the doctor in the end, instead of taking a decision on, on one one marker or one type of information, yeah. suddenly you have much more data. So you can go up to 15, 20, 40, or 40 it's markers. unlimited technically, uh, uh, biomarkers that you can analyze. And, and the more information you have, the, the better decision you will be able to make. To in the end. So and, and that's going also towards a bit more of the personalized medicine. So understanding which patient benefit from what drugs, what are the what we call signature panels that would be able to de detect the right type of information that would be able to either better select patients or better decide which can, which patient benefit from, from a certain treatment or not. And the intent here is not to like compete with other omics techniques. Like, I mean, if, if we say that one day special biology is established as a diagnostic solution, this doesn't replace the insights we get from genetic data, from other types of data, right? It It's... It could in the future, future, yeah. but for now it's really complementary. Basically, you would the, the the dream for a pathologist would be to have all of a huge dashboard with yeah. all of the type of analysis you could do. Should it be spatial biology? Should it be uh, any type of uh, other analysis? And then have as much information as possible and and be able to make the right uh, decision based on that. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because uh, in the public opinion, I feel like, you know, genetic data is like the key puzzle piece to solve to understand everything we know or we can know about the disease and how we can solve them. So that's an interesting take on that. Um, so maybe linking this a bit to the products that you have on the market, can you describe them to us? Uh, what are their specificities, the features um, and how they function basically? Yeah, so we have um, two products or product lines. Um, one is called Lapsat, and it's the one we had launched in 2019 that I was mentioning before. Yeah. Uh, both of our products have the core 
same technology with the microfluidics. Um, in the case of LabSat, it's basically what we call the kind of the introduction to spatial biology. It's, it's a smaller instrument. It's made for labs that want to run new types of applications, but always keeping the essence of the technology, which is bringing reproducibility, uniformity of the staining, uh, but also speed. So we're much faster than other te technologies. Um, and because you have a certain level of openness, um, it, it's inherent to our technology. People can use their own antibodies or reagents that they want on any tissue that is fixed on a glass slide. In this case, uh, there's a large range of capabilities you could you, or applications you could do with, yeah. with this instrument. Um, on the other hand, Comet, which is our instrument that has been released just a few months ago, it's kind of our flagship product. Um, it is again same core technology, and um, the difference here is that you can you have it actually integrated with the microscope directly. So it's basically a sample in, data out type of instrument. So you, yeah. you you put in your biopsy or your sample, and you get the image out of your of your st of your staining and and, and tissue, um, and it allows to go with much more. Uh, let's say biomarkers or markers or antibodies on the same tissue. So suddenly you have a map with, let's say, 40 markers without human intervention um, that are on your tissue. And then you can start understanding, for example, again, as I was saying, immune cells, cancer cells, you would, you know, every, every color would be one type of information uh, on one marker, basically, that you're using. Okay, so there is one platform LabSat which is more about you know doing the staining and and then the peop, like the users have to do the imaging themselves and you have another one which is a more integrated solution where you have automation of the staining process and you have the imaging done in the same product, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's all integrated. Yeah. Okay, and um, I can imagine that the amount of you know data that you gather from these images are like. These are like huge amounts of data. Um, how do you, I, I mean, is there the focus from the company already now on how to analyze this data or do you do collaborations to to apply, I don't know, AI to the to 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 the analysis of such data bases? Yeah. So for us, what is important is that we are basically enabling spatial biology in every lab. So that's our mission. Yeah. So we're making sure that uh, the labs are getting everything they need to be able to analyze that and do it in an easy way. Yeah. Um, it's extremely complex. So everything yeah. you can facilitate will be, of course, uh, extremely welcome. Um, so from sample in, and then as, as we're discussing, it's it's all automated until you get the, the, the image out. And then you have indeed that step that is almost the most important one for the for the labs lab users it's 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 actually the analysis part because that's where you start to understand what's happening on your tissue yeah. and that's basically the outcome of of why you're doing these these types of stainings as well um so we are uh, of course uh, it's very important for us to also make sure that they can um, let's say every user can can have access to the best ways to analyze tissue so for now there's uh, a few collaborations we've set in place with uh, some of actually two of the biggest um, uh, companies uh, in the field. So doing also AI analysis. So basically ju just helping you to connect and understand, you know, for example, cell segmentation or the distance yeah. between the cells or any type of information that would allow you then to, you know, just get the, the full understanding of your tissue. Exactly. It's so like capabilities like telling you this is tumor tissue, this is healthy tissue, you can tell 
what the phenotype of the different cells uh you can do like some plot i mean i yeah. guess there are lots of different possibilities exactly lots of different possibilities i think there there's an unlimited amount of uh, of uh, plots you couldn't go for of course <laughs> some of them are more relevant than than others depending on what you're looking at if you're looking at the evolution of the disease if you're looking at just the proximity between the cells um and so on so on okay and so The, these two platforms, as we mentioned, are um, for the moment rather research focused, um, but they, they surely have the potential to to turn into these into powerful diagnostic tools on on the long term. Um, but assuming that the technology that you have created holds already that that promise uh, from the technical perspective, what are the current barriers to transitioning from that research setting to something more clinical? Is it about um, you know the Um, just the use of the method or is it about acceptability of the method from medical professionals um, can you tell us a bit more about that yeah um, yeah it's always a, a a lot of different steps to take let's say to go all the way to the diagnostic space now um As I was saying, spatial biology is, is pretty new, or the fact that you're getting much more markers per sample is, is pretty new. Uh, let's say what is already in the diagnostic is, is for example, making an assessment, but based on one marker. So the approach we're taking now is, is rather new. And what we need to do is, first of all, all of the education uh, on the regulatory side for people to understand uh, and uh, What are the benefits of that? So, so this is what you need to have as a discussion with the FDA and others. You know, just just to for them to understand that this is yeah the actually, education parts. Yeah, exactly, yeah. going to benefit the patient. So that comes with, of course, a lot of scientific data. So right now it means, and that's the stage at which we are. We're working with key opinion leaders in the world, yeah. uh, pharma companies, and 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 many other labs that are in this translational phase towards yeah. the clinical space. So producing more and more data, understanding what are the signature panels, what are the right biomarkers that will be able to, to you know, just make the right decisions on a specific drug, for example. Um, so all of those steps of, of creating more scientific data, it's something we're really doing at the moment. And then, yeah. of course, there will be additional steps more on the regulatory side, getting the official approvals. Um, and uh, to some extent also making sure that everyone is is convinced um, should it be on the regulatory side or on the on the medical side for the additional benefits that such kind of analysis is bringing to the field. Okay, so currently you are focusing on this evidence generation phase. Um. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, it's 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 for several purposes. I mean, on one hand, just because when you're coming with a new instrument. For anyone to yeah. buy, they want to make sure that, that you know they have proof that it works and that it, it has added value. But then, of course, um, more specifically, working with translational labs really to bring uh, all of that to the to the clinical and diagnostic space. So currently, in the process, when you are when you engage with a potential customer or a lab, you you have this accompanying service, right? Where you you go to them, you install the system, you educate them on how to use it. Um, what what's the process there? Yeah, so uh, of course, because they are rather large instruments, we need to be on site. So there's always yeah. a, a set of um, days for installation and training initially. 
Um, and depending, of course, on the expertise from every lab, there is more or less training. But then, let's say a big advantage of our technology is that it's it's very easily easy to onboard on the technology. It's really one of our main differentiator to competitors. So um, we see customers that within a week just make big panels work, uh, something that usually would have taken them almost a year or, or nine to, yeah. to, to nine months to a year for making it work on other technologies. So then they, they can pretty be pretty quickly be uh, up to speed and, and, and make sure that they can run the analysis that they want to do. And of course, then on the side, we're always supporting them with, with our field application specialists and yep. field engineers for any type of requests that would come um, um, on if anything doesn't work or if there's any kind of willingness from, for them to try something and we would accompany them to make sure that they get the, the best experience, of course. Okay, uh, I have a question regarding the the time to develop the, 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 the your system. So the first system that you have, the LabSat, this took you created the company in 2014. It went live 2018 or 2019, 19. 2019. Yeah. So five years, and now you have a second one, um, which adds a level of complexity because you have the microscope part in it and the image analysis part in it. Um, how 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 long did it take to develop Comet? Was it also you, do you need to take into account the five years that you had for Lapsat? Was it run in parallel or was it something sequential? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's it's um, so in general, let's say we we say it's three to five years to develop such kind of instruments until it's launched. Okay. In general, now um, we basically along the way until Lapsat came. I mean. There were also a few, few bifurcations that we've done, strategically changing from time to time. So I wouldn't say that the 100% of the time was fully focused on, on one specific instrument. So we've yeah. been testing other things along the way. Um, for Comet in particular, it's something we've been cooking for quite a long time, actually. So it, okay. it has been staying as a one-person job for many, many years because we're focusing on Lapsat and... Also because the, we did believe that the field was or the market was not ready for this new technology that we were cooking. So it's it, because yeah. we're com coming with a very different approach. We were seeing the trends in the market, but it's always a bit of a of a of a bet whether you're too early or too late or you know just try to to time that. So for 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 some years it's been saying a one one man project and then as soon as you start to see the um, let's say the potential of it or you start start to see a bit the trend changing in the market uh, we did start to put this as a priority uh, project on our side. And then when you're going full speed and putting most of the, let's say, resources of the company on the project, then of course it goes a bit faster. Um, and that's where I think three to five years is is uh, what we had more or less. But of course the core technology was the same as LabSat. So a lot of the, let's say, protocols can be yeah. transferred, not fully. I always get the application <laughs> development team saying, no, you cannot just, you know, use this one-to-one, so uh, -one, but it's almost the case. I mean, it's just a few tweaks usually just to, to make sure you adapt from, from one machine to the other. Okay. And so the next, um, could you tell us a bit about like the next steps for LabSat? Like now you have this priority access program and I think you're scaling up the 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 deployment of that platform what what additional features are, can, can can you think about at the moment or are you working if you can share that of course <laughs> so there's always a lot of plans i cannot share everything of course <laughs> but so lapsat is is uh, is still continuing to to be um on the market yeah. we 
uh, always looking to new applications that we could add on top. But since it's a pretty open system, there's already quite a, a lot of flexibility there. And for Comet, um, it's because we're deploying it now as a priority access program, we see a huge amount of traction. I think we yeah. have more customers than machines we can provide at the <laughs> time. So it's a good sign. It's a sign. good situation, yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, we're always looking into what we're going to develop. So uh, on one hand, there's everything on the application side. So making sure we're providing also customers with more protocols, more types of reagents and essays that they can use. Um, so, so, you know, because we start with immuno-oncology and then we will probably look into other fields as well, immunology, infectious diseases in general, um, and, and make sure that you can expand the range of, of applications there. And then, of course, on the technology side, and that's where I cannot disclose too much, there are always things going on. Uh, we have a, a very big uh, R&D team with innovation as well. So um, always uh, ready to come up with new, <laughs> new appealing features. <laughs> Exciting stuff ahead. Um, a question that I had when I was looking at, uh, you know, how the products work, uh, I would encourage the listeners to look at the, the images that are produced with your system. I think even, even if you're not into the, the topic much, it's, it's super impressive and you can like kind of play around with the different biomarkers and you see these different layers of color and all the details is super impressive. Um, are you able, I mean, from what I've seen, it's pictures taken from uh, plate samples, so 2D. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you were able to generate 3D images based on the staining and the imaging capabilities that you have on the platform, or if it's something that's potentially in the future or not really necessary. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a question, of course, we, we, we've, we've got also in the past from, from some research labs. Uh, 3D technically uh, changing a few things yeah. on the technology. I think you could. It's just that the let's say the reason why we're not investing on that or we don't necessarily see the the interest for it is that the pathology space has always been looking at 2D. So 2D, yeah. if you wanted to change that, you have to re-educate completely the doctors. And we know that's not something that you do uh, overnight. <laughs> so um, it's the way it has, been, let's say people have been looking at the samples. Um, and especially because our aim is really to move into the clinical and diagnostic space, that that's definitely not something the 3D wouldn't be there. I mean, at least not even for the 20 or 30 next years, okay. I would say. So so not necessarily something we want to focus on. Uh, but yeah, it's always a, a cool thing, more on the research side. <laughs> and um, another question that I had, um, which is more about, so you mentioned that we are, the technology that you have is really enabling to accelerate certain workflows that are in the labs uh, due to the microfluidic technology you have. Can you detail a bit more about what, what explains this gain of time? Is it about the lower amount of fluid you're using? Is it about the control you have on different parameters? Um, can you elaborate yeah. a bit on that? Yeah, so you have to think of, um, you know, every those kind of stainings, the way they were done was mostly manual or with automatic yeah. automated arms that would just basically replace, replace the hand. Um, so you're basically, what's happening is when you put your drop of, of liquid on your sample, you're waiting for diffusion. And in the Lunar 4 uh, technology, we have this closed chamber and we have an active flow. Um, so we control every second what is the flow we're bringing to the sample, um, how long we're exposing to it, to it. We also, because it's a very well-defined chamber, it's, it's also... Um, we know exactly what is 
least the amount of volume we're exposing for how long and on what part. And that's also what brings the, the whole uniformity that we can have on, on the sample. Yeah. Um, so those are part of the, let's say, the, the, the reasons why we have a, a core technology that is much more advanced than any other technology that is used in the field. Um, and there are capabilities, of course, when you control the, the flow to, you know, go back and forth and, and do kind of things where basically you're pushing your reagents to, to attach faster to, to the sample. So that's, that's, let's say, what is inherent to the technology itself. Um, and basically, and, and another aspect here is that we have been innovating on how this interaction is happening between antibodies and antigen uh, yeah. at the surface of the of the sample when many of the other companies have been rather trying to come up with new types of reagents um so they are coming with you know barcoding techniques conjugated antibodies so try to come with their specific technique which makes every customer be bound to their specific yeah, reagents method. when we have an open system so we're optimizing on the reaction so yeah. whatever antibody you use would work on our platform and that's what many customers like because they've been working often with their own antibodies and they just want to transfer that very easily to the platform as well okay um yeah because the from what i've seen the creating their own antibody it's like a very strenuous process they have to do validation they have to check many different stuff it takes months uh, and uh, and the system that you enable that 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 you guys have like in terms of gain of time we talk about reducing down workflows that take potentially a week or multiple days to a few hours or maybe one day so it's kind of I mean it's quite significant yeah. um, so I think we we covered quite a lot you mentioned at the beginning the the start of the company what was the scope you took us through. Um, special biology also immunostaining how the products work um, I think it was uh, it was super interesting um, and another topic that I would like to touch on which is not directly related to the purely technical side of things is that you're the first uh, woman I get to exchange with on the podcast and given your path in entrepreneurship and especially in the context of medical technology where I think it's still like mostly dominated by men I believe this is an aspect that you have been discussing many times in the past uh, with your surroundings since the creation of the company. And having evolved alongside two other co-founders who are men, Diego and Atatuna that we mentioned before, do you feel like it has come with additional challenges on your side um, that did not have to cope with? Um, or would you be able to share with us a bit about your experience there? Yeah, so it's uh, indeed a question I, I often get. So it's a, let's say, Initially, I've been changing my mind over the years about this topic, let's yeah. say, <laughs> because I've, I've been studying, you know, mathematics and physics uh, were maybe two girls with only guys and, you know, not something I, I that changed anything for me. Um, yeah. So uh, it's a bit the approach I had also when, when starting the company. I mean, I didn't make any difference here. Uh, but I think it's a bit more subtle than that. I mean, when you end up being always the only woman with 10 or 15 men, and usually also the age makes a difference. Yeah. So I was pretty, yeah. I am pretty young. <laughs> <still, still> young. <laughs> and with a lot of, you know, 60-year-old guys in the room, etc., you start to see that it might play a role on maybe the, the, the level of confidence you might have in those discussions yeah. or, or, you know, just the, the fact that... Again, might be all in my head, but I think it's many, for the case for many women as well is that you have this 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 feeling you have to kind of 
justify yourself before you can be you know credible enough mm-hmm. in the eyes of people you're talking to so i think that has played a bit of a difference i've, I've you know looking backward I've, i was also trying to analyze situations where i was feeling comfortable or less comfortable yeah. and every time there were wo- more women in the room that makes a, a very big difference for me in terms of the level of confidence and and i think that's i'm not even sure t- if I'm able to explain why, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably with lots of psychological re- reasons behind that. But um, I think that has played a bit of a, of a difference um, in that sense. I mean, there's a lot of data showing that if you, if it's too, ma- an investor discussing with a male entrepreneur, male investor, yeah. um, it's, it's a completely different discussion than with a woman mm-hmm. entrepreneur, etc. So, so lots of the data support that as well. Um, but on the other hand, what I saw as, um, I would say, as an advantage being a woman is that because we are fewer, then you're also a bit more easily put on under the spotlight, yeah. which is something that, of course, when you're trying to make some noise or, or, or create Helps some visibility for your company, that has helped a lot. Um, initially, I hated that, to be honest, because yeah. I, I, I hated being, you know, just called in for being a, a woman, which I don't think it was just for that. But, but you know, mm-hmm. just there was a bit of a bias there. But in the end, I also see the interest for seeing more of those role models, women. Um, yeah. It's also, you know, initially, I would never have thought to, to be able to be an entrepreneur because you, you see mainly male entrepreneurs yeah. and, and, you know, just being able to have some some of those role models i think it's just helping as a whole in the ecosystem as well is that i mean the ecosystem around the pfl and thing in switzerland uh, there, there's a lot around entrepreneurship going on do you do you get contacted a lot by you know students i mean girls who are willing to maybe take down a similar route as you did and do, do you share your experience with them do you do you get a lot of requests I don't necessarily get a lot of direct requests of people writing, yeah. but I've gotten a lot of requests to go and present to uh, audiences that are focused, let's say, for for, yeah. for women entrepreneurs or so. Um, and it's always extremely rewarding to see when they come, you know, with, with those eyes, shiny yeah. eyes at the end of the discussion uh, uh, with, with some specific questions or, or you can you can see this maybe lack of confidence that is more present in women you know hey i don't know if that makes sense that i do this company and you know just encouraging them and and in some cases i've seen really that now some some of these these women are are, you know having their own company so it's extremely nice to see that happen that's super nice thanks a lot for for sharing that um so at the slowly come to to the end of the of the episode um and usually i i come up with you know set of recurring questions um the first one i had to tweak it a little bit to adapt it to the to the topic that we mentioned um but could you share with us an, an anecdote from your adventure at luna 4 which made you realize the impact that you're having on medical research or research in general and which really stuck in your mind yeah i think there are many many examples but maybe one that that i can think of um right now is Actually, we do a lot of work on immuno-oncology, but in this case, it was actually related to COVID. We have one of our, of our customers that has been analyzing um, samples from placenta from, from women who were yeah. pregnant and lost their baby uh, because of COVID. Because of COVID. And 
So it's it's all you know exploratory, understanding why this could have happened, etc. But at the same time, I knew people around me who had or, or women around me who had COVID, lost their baby. Not yeah. always sure it was a linked or not, but you know, just getting that data at the same time as you hear these things with people around you was kind of you know just making it more yeah. real and 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 also understanding really the the importance of of all of the research that is happening to understand what's what's going on there. So that that's maybe the one I can. Relate. <laughs> Thanks. Um, which easily accessible resource would you recommend to our listeners so that they can explore further the field in which you work? I think it's quite technical, so maybe there is like a <laughs> couple of reference papers you want you you would encourage people to read, or maybe there's something more accessible. I don't know. Yeah. It's a, so since it's a pretty new field, especially spatial biology, it's it, there's really not much to read. Um, or, or let's say it's starting to happen and we see very nice market research reports as well, but those are usually private. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, it, and maybe that's a bit of, of, of marketing for us, but at least uh, on our website now we're <laughs> working on this blog to try to simplify the, you know, yeah. the, the understanding of the field. And um, in I know that we also have in our, our news or media coverage, some interviews from our key opinion leaders, so scientific advisory yeah. board. Um, that are very nicely simplifying also what are, what is really the impact of spatial biology in in the space. So I think that's that's words uh, worth the read, and then from there there are always links to to other types of of readings as well. So uh, maybe not the let's say the most uh, unbiased uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Not> <laughs> response, but that's the one that I think. Uh, I mean that's also why I, I wanted to make sure we initiate this blog is because we yeah. we don't find such kind of exactly. content. So I want to make sure that people can understand what's what's happening in spatial biology and i would agree because i went through having all the the posts that you've the, <laughs> that you've written already in preparation to just to get up to speed and still they're very well written and super well documented you have like also images and so on it's it's really cool thanks um which person would you recommend as a potential guest uh on the podcast and and why so uh, probably lots of people, but if I have to nail it down, uh, there are two people that come to my mind, uh, again, more in the medical field, um, one being uh, Michael Friedrich from Distal Motion. The, okay. re yeah. the reason why I'm mentioning him is because he was this kind of entrepreneurs, which we were looking up to also even, you know, being back at the time of my, of my studies, he was working on this previous company I might go that he managed to sell okay uh, and then now he has this uh, other company distal motion that is a good success it's, it's a surgical robots and yeah. um, so that might be also of interest and then the other person I can think of is Jorgi Comblon from oh, Sophia yeah. Genetics, Sophia Genetics yeah. again uh, just you know that's uh, the the really the example for us yeah. uh, again few years before as he started the company, he's close by and um, he has gone through the IPO recently. So yeah. it's kind of the, the you know, profiles we, we look up to. And, and of course, it's since they are democratizing data-driven medicine, then yeah. it's also very close to our field. So. Exactly. Oh, that's very inspiring. Um, how can we get in touch with you? By email, LinkedIn? Both email, Both. LinkedIn. Um, not always a very fast answer time, though, but <laughs> <laughs> that's but definitely the, the, the two, two channels I'm, I'm the most, uh, let's say, accessible. Okay, so I will put the, the, the links to both uh, in the description, also like linking the website and probably the, the LinkedIn company page. Um, 
Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I think that was a, a good conversation. I hope I managed to to make the message simple enough. Uh, but it's an extremely exciting field. It's a it's a booming field. So uh, I I encourage everyone to to get some some reading around that and and understanding what's happening in the field. I mean, we see this as a bit of the the I was saying the new frontier, but the 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 next generation of what was happening also with with genomic before, where yeah. you know. Again, you have just the experts that were capable of, of doing those kind no, of analysis. And then, yeah, and then suddenly you have next generation sequencing that makes it available for everyone. So we're we're really in the in the in the process of doing the same thing here. And um I hope we'll just manage to to get that uh, in every lab and and you know just make sure that the, the field is advancing and we get better treatments and therapies for, for patients in the future as well. Yeah, that, that's the least I can wish you for, for the rest. And really, I, um, I mean, it was, it was a great time and a great exchange. Thank you so much, Deborah, for taking the time. I know you're also very busy. So thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks a lot to you. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. Don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. Also, I would be really grateful if you could leave a positive evaluation on Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free also to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks and see you in the next one.